Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Earth News Interviews. My name is Sophia, and I'm here with my co-host, Dean. Hello, everyone. And today we're going to be talking about fracking-induced seismicity. And we have a really special guest with us who is an expert in this topic. Everybody, please welcome Dr. Sameka Louie. Hello, everyone. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for being here. So, Sameka, you are an assistant professor at University of Toronto, Mississauga. And this is actually the first time we're meeting. So could you actually tell us a little bit about the research that you do? Yeah, so um, my research is about the physics of earthquakes. So uh, what I try to do is to characterize their properties, um, you know, the size, you know, how we can determine the size and the whole rupture process of an earthquake based on seismic data that we collect from the field. And I also do uh, numerical modeling that try to understand the whole dynamic process. So actually not just, you know, how the earthquake um, propagates on the fault, but also what's the process leading up to the failure and also what happened after the earthquake arrest. So how does the fault move basically during the entire inner seismic period, not just like during the, the episode, the, the dynamic episode itself. So um, that's basically, you know, kind of like a, a brief summary of what I do. What is it that got you interested in the earth sciences or, or even just what you do in, in seismicity? So I think it, it's partly related to um, the fact that I grew up in Hong Kong. So it's a, you know, it's a concrete jungle where we don't really get a lot of exposure to nature if you don't purposely make that happen. But um, I think Hong Kong is also special in a way that actually, like, I think two thirds of the area is actually like countryside and mountains. Um, and so even though, you know, it's a concrete jungle. And so I'm thankful that my parents actually took me on, you know, different heights over the weekends. And um, they, I'm also fortunate enough to, that they brought me to a lot of international trips during summers, you know, whenever we are, we have, um, we're off school. So I've been to uh, places like the Grand Canyon, um, glaciers in Alaska, and um, I've actually been to like the Niagara Falls before, before I, I moved to Toronto. So I think all these exposure to nature makes me like come to enjoy it and also like, you know, enjoy any chance of learning about it. And so I also... Um, think that, you know, starting in high school, my, my favorite subject is physical geography. Um, and so I do, like, I did plan to major in geology even before entering college. So for me, it's less of like a, you know, aha moment when, you know, I've heard a lot of stories from other people when they say, you know, I, I did like plan to major in something else um, when I, when I started college, but, you know, taking this particular course in geology, like kind of make me have that switch for me. It's, it's, it's a more boring story. It's more direct as in like, I kind of knew that I wanted to to study earth science. And I remember like having so much fun in, in intro to geology, the first year course. And so that kind of reinforced my interest in earth science. So I never, you know, really switched directions from then on. On a previous episode, we talked about having, well, actually not a previous episode. We're actually going to uh, release this episode later, but we talked about field courses. So could you tell us a little bit about your experience in field courses as a student, maybe as a as an instructor as well? Yeah, um, I think I had the longest field course in my second year 
yeah, in my second year um, in my in a sophomore summer, um, that was like a six week field course. In um, so I went to University of Michigan, but that six week field course is um, conducted in Wyoming, where we have like the Camp Davis um, campsite. So I remember, you know, going out there knowing nothing about, you know, well, at least not that much about actual geologic mapping and all that. But I think it really um, gave me the experience of being a real geologist in the field, not just like, you know, um, looking at pictures in textbook and, and looking at rock samples in, you know, in the lab, looking for outcrops and actually like measuring strike and dips. I think those are like valuable, valuable experience for me. Um, I honestly, like in my graduate school, I didn't really have much chance to do field work because all I, like a lot of my research is computational. So I rely on, you know, data collected online. Um, but then, you know, I still remember those um, fond memories of field course where I have no showers for like five or six days, right? Those are like the, you know, unforgettable things about field course that I still, you know, feel like sharing with people these days. And um, I think I think it's really the experience of being really close to nature that makes those so memorable. I think our listeners are either following one of two camps on that. Either they're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love those, those times where you can't shower for five days and you're just out there. And there's people who are like, what does she mean fun and memorable? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the paper. Um, yeah. I just want to kind of set the stage here. So we have this habit of thinking about big phenomena like hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes and regional and global climate systems as being too big and too out of reach for us to have any real impact on. They certainly affect us, but how could we affect them? Mm-hmm. But we're realizing more and more these days that we're pretty big ourselves. We exist, our societies exist at regional and global scales, and thus certainly have the potential to influence nature on those scales. And Mm -hmm. so we hear a lot of talk in the media on the ways we influence the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, the cryosphere, and the biosphere. But how about the lithosphere? This is the interesting question that we have to answer today. So Sophia, please take it away with your timely paper on this subject. Thank you, Dean. That was wonderful. So this paper comes to us from the Seismological Society of America from Science Daily. And it talks about one of the ways that we humans have affected the lithosphere, for better or for worse. Uh, So specifically, we talk about fracking. So fracking is a way to get oil and natural gas from deep underground. And the process involves drilling deep vertical and horizontal boreholes into deep underground reservoirs of oil and natural gas. So these boreholes are then filled with pressurized slick water, which causes fractures in the bedrock, which releases the pressure and allows the oil and gas to flow freely through these fractures. So what is slick water and why is it important for the fracking process? Yeah, so um, slick water is basically used as an important, you know, a medium to optimize the whole hydraulic fracturing process. And so it consists of, you know, several important components. So first of all is water itself. So it, um, and then the second one is different kinds of chemicals. So they serve um, different purposes. And the third one would be uh, propent, which is basically porous materials such as um, sand or ceramic beads. So water is the medium that brings the propent and the chemicals down to the rock formation. And um, the propent, it's used to basically prop open fracture, right? So when the hydraulic 
pressure is eventually removed from the well after the injection, the initial injection, these little propins would um, hold the fractures open and prevent any newly created fissures and fractures in the shear rock from closing up once it's been hyd- hydrofractured. And so um, it you know, does that kind of protection of you know, keeping the, the fissures and fractures in place. And the different kinds of chemicals are um, comes into play they have different roles. So for example, one important chemical to be added would be a friction reducer. So what it does is it, re- it lowers the surface tension and um, in order to increase the fluid flow and so that you know one can reduce the pumping pressures to a more manageable level because now the, um, the friction pressure is reduced because of this friction reducer. And um, another kind of chemicals that is added is to prevent organisms from clogging the fissure or um, prevent the buildup of minerals. Basically, it's just to keep the fissure open and flowing, you know, without a problem. A third usual kind of chemicals added would be um, something to keep the sand suspended in the fluid as it gets um, pumped down in um, the borehole. So basically, all three like mixed together, you know, becomes the slick water, and it's just you know essential for optimizing this whole hydraulic fracture process. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that that much went into it. Yeah. And I think I can, you know, I read up some articles that talk about, you know, if fluid, you know, fluid can be pumped down to the borehole as fast as about like 100 barrels per minute, but like without like with slick water, but without the slick water, um, the top speed would only go up to like 60 barrels per minute. So it's a huge difference. And so you can, yeah, now we can you, you get an idea of why, you know, a lot of people actually like do research on how to optimize this, you know, the production of slick water, what's the best for different geology. Um, so they do like different mixture of like these chemical additives to get the optimal, you know, mixture of slick water to be used in different locations. Mm-hmm. Well, if you've got as many oil fields as U.S. state Oklahoma does, then, I mean, you better think of something that's effective and efficient right. to get that, to get the natural gas and oil. That's out. right. So that's right. Oklahoma actually contains 14 of the 100 largest oil fields in the U.S., which is just for comparison. At the end of 2017, mm-hmm. Canada proved 69 trillion cubic feet of natural gas reserves. But the U.S. proved over 430 trillion cubic feet. Now, I know I'm using oil and uh, oil and natural gas interchangeably here, but here I, I do mean uh, natural gas. So over the last several decades, fracking companies have caused concern over the potential dangers of uh, fracking activities. Uh, mm-hmm. And this concern stems from the fact that fracking can facilitate earthquakes, which is the main yeah. topic today. So, Samega, can you tell us about the basic mechanisms of fracking-induced seismicity? Yeah, so the micro seismicity itself is, which is like basically very small earthquakes with magnitude less than one, or actually magnitude close to zero in some other literatures. So these micro seismicity is actually expected during the hydrofractor operations because um, it is bound to occur when rock actually fractures. Um, so in general, these actual uh, micro seismicity would not pose much risk um, to the the public. But um, I think what we're talking about when we when we mention like fracking induced seismicity, we're talking about earthquakes that are with magnitudes much much higher than magnitude one, and um, they are those that occur along pre existing faults that are you know um, adjacent or really close to these injection or um, fracking wells, um, and it, it, you know, in this case, it comes down to like the interaction between the hydraulic fracking fluid and the pre-existing fracture 
or subsurface structure um, in the in the region. And so um, when we specifically talk about fracking induced seismicity, we're we're not talking about like the the during the operation itself, you know, those very small earthquakes, but those that are much larger that occurs in on pre-existing fractures that can pose seismic harm. And so in Oklahoma, the largest fracking induced earthquake was only about a magnitude 3.6, which I guess is still larger than those micro seismic events. But there are these rare occurrences of higher ones. Like, for instance, it's gone up to 5.4. And in Canada, the biggest one was 4.6 in British Columbia. So Mm -hmm. from what I understand, the Richter scale is logarithmic. So a magnitude 5 earthquake is tenfold more intense than a magnitude 4 earthquake. So how different are the effects of, say, a 3.6 magnitude earthquake and a 5.4? I mean, they're two units apart. How big is the difference that we experience? Can we feel it? Or is there any damage to infrastructure? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so... Richter scale is what we call the local magnitude scale. So it's logarithmic in a sense of um, measuring the shaking amplitude. So you can imagine for one whole number increase in magnitude, that basically represents a tenfold increase in the measured shaking amplitude. Um, But if we are talking about um, the energy released by an earthquake, because um, that has a, you know, another scaling relationship between energy and shaking amplitude in terms of the energy released a whole number increase in amplitude would um, imply an increase of energy released of about 32 times so um, in this case it means that the difference in magnitude of about two um, so between 3.6 if i'm comparing like 3.6 and a 5.6 earthquakes it means that the energy released would be a thousand times more uh, between like yeah 5.6 and 3.6. And so um, I think, so that's why for a magnitude three earthquakes, um, it can be felt by people, but it rarely causes damage. But um, you can probably notice like indoor objects shaking. But if we're talking about earthquakes in the range of five, which are, you know, the major um, induced earthquakes that occurred in Oklahoma, probably not just due to um, hydraulic fracking, but also due to like other uh, processes like wastewater injection, um, those can cause considerable damage, at least like to you know some poorly constructed buildings and can be felt by almost everyone in the affected region. So I think when we talk about earthquake magnitude, we we're specifically referring to the earthquake's inherent force, but um, it's different from like the intensity of an earthquake, which is um, refers to like measuring you know the the level of shaking produced by an earthquake. And that depends on other factors, such as like the depth of an earthquake or the geology of the region that are affected. And so I think sometimes like it's also important to note that, you know, the magnitude of earthquakes may not directly be scaling with the actual amount of shaking that one may feel. So the, yeah, what I just said about like the depth or the or, of the earthquake or the geology of the region would be, you know, additional factors that controls or affect, you know, how much the actual shaking that people would feel. But um, yeah, that 1000 difference in terms of uh, times difference in terms of energy released is is um, something, you know, quite um, surprising, I would say. If you, if you don't know like the scaling behind, you know, you, you might think that the, the d- difference of two in magnitude might not be that big, you know, but it's actually not. A lot of complicated factors go into the effects of an earthquake, but at least like mm-hmm. the the energy term is there and it makes sense. Like the logarithmic scale yeah. is there, but it may not translate to infrastructure damage. Mm-hmm. But 
Nevertheless, the growing concern over the effects of fracking and seismicity has pushed the earth science community, particularly seismologists like yourself, to explore the factors that influence a, fra- a fracking-caused earthquake and how to minimize okay. the risk. So, for instance, one study showed that de- the deeper the fracking well, the more likely the seismic event was going to occur. So can you tell us why that link exists between depth and likelihood of seismicity? So I think the study itself, like the papers that you know we, we discussed today, I think the authors also agree that the exact mechanism is still you know, being examined. But um, the suggesting... The, the fact that, that they suggest for this particular region, the reason why they find that link between depth and the likelihood of seismicity is because of the overpressurization of, of the rock formations. So overpressure basically refers to a state uh, wherein the fluid pressure within the pore space exceeds the hydrostatic gradient, which is about 10 megapascal per kilometers as you go um, at depth. And so and usually uh, shale, it's a kind of rock formations um, that would be often overpressured because of the low permeability of the rock. And so what they found, the author found in their study for this particular region is that um, based on pressure modeling, there is a pore pressure gradient larger than the 10 megapascal per kilometers at the depth of three kilometers, which is the, where the majority of the seismicity occurs. And also, um, based on the modeling, they found that this um, pore pressure gradient increases with increasing depth. So as they go deeper, that gradient is as large as like 12 um, megapascal per kilometer or even higher. And so that could be the culprit that reduces the effective stress on the fault and makes the fault like more susceptible to failure. So I guess I should, um, I guess just now when I talk about um, seismicity, induced like by fracking, I forgot to talk to mention like the the actual mechanism that people think are triggering earthquakes on, you know, on these pre-existing fractures. So um, what people propose is that the pore fluid, um, the fluid probably like, you know, diffuse all the way from the the wells to the pre-existing fractures and the fluid would increase the pore pressure along the fault and the pore pressure would in a way reduces the effective normal stress on the fault and making it more susceptible for like to failure and so um that's why you know this over overpressure phenomenon could be a factor that explain um why it has this depth dependence. Um, another thing that people usually think about would be the assumption that a deeper well would be inherently closer to the crystalline basement where most of these pre-existing fractures are located. So sometimes um, that would be the link because people think that you know the deeper the well, the closer it is to those pre-existing fractures. And so earthquake occurs more easily. But then it is actually not something that this study shows uh, what, what they found. So what they see is that in particular, in this particular region, for some of the very deep um, sedimentary formations, the deeper part of that uh, formation is actually furthest from the basement rock. And so again, for this particular region that of study, uh, they find that the depth varying factor responsible for this trend is not the proximity to the basement. But that could be the reason for some other regions. Mm, yeah, I see. I wonder, does the viscosity of the fluid injected matter at all when it comes to likelihood of a of an earthquake? Yeah. So um, I think what I mean, um, the higher viscosity fluid would tend to have lower hydraulic diffusivity, right? And so um, simulation results also suggest that gel, which is a more viscous 
fluid may not flow as far as you know slick water, and so、um, it would you know the effect on faults would be more limiting if you know we are using gel as the、uh, as the fracking fluid. But it's also important to note, I think, that the difference. Is not as statistically significant as other trends, such as the dependent on the dependence on depth, and this is likely because you know the whole scenario of you know induced seismicity is really dependent on a lot of unknown factors. So, for example,、um, the proximity from the well to the inject、uh, sorry the proximity of the well to the pre-existing fracture is a key factor、um, determining you know how far.、Um, The fluid may flow, and how long it takes for the fluid to flow、um, from you know from the well to the pre-existing fracture. So, I guess so. That's why it's really hard to say. For example, if you're comparing two locations, one using gel as the fracking fluid, and the other one using、um, slick water, it's really hard to just jump to conclusions saying that the one that uses gel would you know have a lower seismic risk because of the higher viscosity of the fracking fluid because there are also a lot of other parameters that we need to take into consideration and、um, another thing that I guess I should mention is that、um, it's actually high, incur a higher cost to use higher viscosity gel as fracking fluid so I think that's also one reason why even though it could be a solution. Um, to you know, reducing seismic risk, it's you know has also other kinds of disadvantage to it. Right, and just to be clear, the whole problem with the injection fluid, the yeah, the fluid that they inject into、uh, the well, getting to a fracture zone, is because there could be slip, and the slip is what causes the seismic event. Correct. That's right. I guess one of the more controversial findings that this group of、uh, geophysicists, led by Dr. Michael Brzezinski, something that they、mm-hmm. uncovered was that the total volume of slick water inserted into the well didn't have an effect on the likelihood of seismicity. So it's important to note that this wasn't the case for previous studies. So maybe this has to do with just the fact that their particular、uh, area that they did the study on was different from other ones in the past. But what they do to sidestep this reproducibility problem is they provide an alternative hypothesis that when there's multiple wells side by side, volume becomes important. But if it's just a single well that's getting fluid injected into it, then it won't really make a difference how much injection fluid you put in there or not. Do you agree with their conclusion, or do you think that there is more to the story? I think just looking, like just reading their paper, I think they have done like a valid study on this specific area, and I think their explanation for you know the difference between the settings of the well, whether it's being a single well or being a you know a, a, a drilling pad with you know mul- multiple wells clustered on it,、um, that could be the difference because you know now you're considering、um, volume as a more you know cumulative. Concept, as in,、um, you have you know maybe large volume injection well in close proximity to other large volume wells. So,、um, but again, I I also think that it's completely possible that the observations can vary from site to site. So, for example, we are also considering if you consider like the permeability of the rock formations in partic- at particular sites. It could already, like you know, affect you know how far the fluid might have diffused away from the、um, from the injection location, and also、um, whether you know the the amount of pre-existing fractures, like the subsurface structure of that particular specific location. So I think all these plays 
you know, into come into play when we decide on, you know, the, the seismic risk of a given region. So I think it, it can be true that in this particular region for the combination of the different factors, volume might not be, you know, might not show to have played a primary role in terms of, you know, deciding the seismic hazard or the risk in this particular region. But I would, I would actually think that, you know, other study are also valid as in they are studying different regions. And it's really hard to just draw conclusions from one study. So I think we need a lot more studies in a lot more different places, different countries, um, in order to see if we can actually find a trend. When people think of earthquakes, they think of areas that are near, like, major faults between Mm -hmm. continents, between oceanic crust and continental crust. Either you're having something rubbed by each other going kind of going parallel to each other, or you have something maybe subducting under another thing or or just kind of colliding. But you don't really think about earthquakes happening kind of inward toward the center of, of a continent, um, like Oklahoma, I feel, is pretty pretty inward, or, or Michigan, or, or places in the Midwest. But they do happen in the background naturally over time. What are the, what are the forces that are generally causing this difference in in pressure buildup? You know, I should emphasize that, you know, even though we are in the intercontinental, there is no like major plate boundaries, but, you know, the crust has been under tectonic stress loading for for many years. And then there, even in the um, continental crust, there is a certain stress field affecting the state of Oklahoma. And so there and there are pre-existing fractures or faults that exist in you know the continental crust, and so um, given like the background tectonic loading, it's still possible that we can see earthquakes in this in these regions, um, even though it's far away from like major tectonic plates. And also, we have to like a lot of studies have shown that you know these faults in the intercontinental. Um, crust, they actually have, um, they are pretty much critically stressed. So they are actually like prone to earthquakes with a little push. And that's why um, a lot of um, people also hypothesize that induced earthquake itself, you know, the the actual perturbation of poor pressure due to like all these different kinds of hydrocarbon productions, they may not be that substantial compared to the ambient stress field. And so but it's all because these faults are already critically stressed due to like the external stress field. And so just a small push would be sufficient enough to produce an earthquakes on these faults. So the, the crust of the, the continent, it's not like this, this rigid shape that is just being pressed. It's, it's, it, can, it can deform. Right. The crust is elastic. And there are all these little, you know, uh, fractures that occurs, and they, they can have their localized slip as well. So you don't have to always think of, you know, like two huge blocks, say, you know, at the major subduction zones that are like sliding past each other. But there are also like small fractures um, that exist in the continental crust that could have localized movement. It's like a thick Play-Doh. You press yeah. here, but it's going to move over there too. <laughs> Yeah, Dean, it's a lot more complicated than the than the block model we learned in uh, in structural in second year. I do soil. This is complicated for me. <laughs> so I was wondering. I just want to kind of go back to what you said about how different regions may have um, different geologies that may either increase or decrease the likelihood of an earthquake. But what 
actual factors control the magnitude of an induced seismic event? And for example, for these fracking companies, what should they do before they decide, okay, we're going to we're going to do fracking here? What kind of factors are they looking for? Yeah, it's actually like an excellent question in terms of like asking what's the maximum possible magnitude that, you know, these hydrocarbon um, production or operations can potentially like, you know, induce what kind of what's the size of the earthquakes. So I think, first of all, it really, you know, comes down to the faults, whether there exist faults that are large enough to produce felt earthquakes. So um, if you actually um, start uh, injecting or like yeah, injecting fluids into a, an area where there is basically no faults um, nearby, then probably like you're pretty safe um, to have that operations done. I think secondly, it's also the question to ask would be um, whether the the stress that would be perturbed that will be large enough to produce an earthquake. So that comes down to you know where whether you have a. Uh, what kind of injection volume you are looking at and what kind of rate of injecting the fluid you are lo- you are having and also you know the duration of the injection that you are um, planning to have and also like the third thing would be like whether there is the presence of fluid pathways from the um, hydrofracking points to the faults right so if you are looking at a rock formation with basically no no such kind of fluid pathways, then we wouldn't expect fluid to reach the faults. And maybe that also would reduce the seismic risk. And so these are like um, different factors that controls or contributes to, you know, how big an earthquake would be. Uh, but actually, um, people have done like statistic studies on statistical studies on the like, like the likelihood of the maximum, you know, what, what kind of the, the, what's the biggest induced earthquakes that one might experience in certain regions. And what they find from induced earthquake catalog is that the frequency size, frequency and size distribution of induced earthquakes is not that much different from the distribution of regular tectonic earthquakes. So what it means, what it implies is that we probably can use like a regular seismic hazard assessment plan that we use for tectonic earthquakes on induced seismicity because their distribution in terms of size and um, frequency, it's like so similar. And so it's almost like some people also hypothesize that, you know, these what we call induced earthquakes, uh, they are actually like very similar to tectonic earthquakes. So they're bound to happen anyway, but they are probably advanced in terms of time because now, you know, the, the crust is perturbed, like the pressure on the fault is perturbed due to this uh, all these kind of like uh, industrial activities. So um, that's also why we think, you know, there is like high resemblance between induced earthquakes and tectonic, typical tectonic earthquakes. This seems similar to me to like uh, increased hurricanes with, with climate change. You can't say like that hurricane is there because climate change, right? Because the ocean's warmer. You can't say, but you can say maybe like uh, this is, happening earlier like the the season is the season is extending or something like that for for hurricanes so it would it probably wouldn't have been here this early or something like that but it, it seems similar to that and i wonder if there's any sort of i don't know if you have any comments on uh how we can as a society you know mitigate or or account for these externalities of of doing business of of causing damage yeah so so that's a great question because i think Induced seismicity, it, it does have like pose a lot of environmental impact and, and seismic risk um, to, you know, the, the public. And I think um, 
that's why you know the all these industrial activities and uh, induced seismicity itself they are like strictly regulated before a company can start an operation they have they have to have like a very thorough um, risk assessment before starting any fracking activities and also um, because of like the potential risk the government is usually like very cautious about moving forward and so because of that um, the companies would also invest like a lot of money to deploy you know denser arrays um, for monitoring like real-time earthquakes and so the catalog completeness the completeness so basically the smallest um, magnitude that can be detected from like these very dense array has like lower to you know uh, less than maybe magnitude two so people can you know have a very complete record of how the seismicity rate looks like in the region and that's like very that that would be very helpful for future research when if we want to kind of better characterize subsurface structures and also if we want to build statistical or numerical models to predict you know the occurrence of induced earthquakes and also a lot of places have also implemented this what we call the traffic light system so basically for a particular place when you have an earthquake with a certain magnitude occurring you will have to report to the government and depending on you know how big this earthquake is and which category it falls into this traffic light system your company will be asked to either reduce your production or um, even like stop operating for a while before you can resume um, production so i think it this has been implemented in a lot of places and we do see cases where companies are asked to shut down their well for a short period of time before resuming. And and I think because of this, because it's so strictly regulated, I think the company themselves also like invested a ton of effort in, you know, making sure that they're minimizing the risk because they would suffer as well if, you know, their wells in the end get shut down um, because of an earthquake. So, yeah. And the inverse of that, though, is it is it possible that inducing a lot of these smaller earthquakes is lowering the risk of less frequent, larger, more damaging earthquakes? Or is that just an entirely different scale? That's actually a very interesting um, comment, I think, because I think it is also true that if you have a lot of small earthquakes that occur um, in that region, it might be able to help release some of the stresses and actually like prevent the occurrence of a big one. But again, like this, this could be something that happened. But it's also there's so much unknown because the crust is opaque and we don't really know the exact structure of the fault and where the fault is, you know, locked and how big of an area is locked for how long. And that would, you know, basically determine how big the next rupture would be. Right. And so um, it is possible that uh, smaller earthquakes um, can help release the stresses. And also, um, if we actually see a ramp up of a small of a bunch of small events, we might be expecting, you know, a, a big one that might come. So those small earthquakes would also be considered as like foreshocks. So in a way, um, these like dense array that are in, being implemented in the industrial area is to help to see if we can monitor like the change in the seismicity rate. So if there is a ramp up in the um, seismicity rate, we may be able to forewarn the the community that, you know, um, we are seeing a pickup of seismicity rate and we might be, you know, expecting um, more active seismic seismicity for a period of time and, and something like that. Yeah. So um, it's really hard to tell. Like it's, yeah, again, like it's, there are so many questions that are not answered in, 
in the future earthquakes that we really don't know what to expect. Usually, like when we see a ramp up of seismicity rate, and people usually also ask, like you know, whether that is the foreshock or whether whether we are expecting a bigger one that would occur soon, or whether you know these small earthquakes themselves, one of them is already the main shock, and that means that we're not expecting a bigger one. So these are like always, you know. Questions that nobody can really answer at this point. So we we had uh, another UTM professor, uh, Dr. Paul Ashwell, on an episode a couple a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago, and we were talking about volcano monitoring mm-hmm. efforts. So I was wondering. It seems as though what you're saying is that monitoring seismic events is a lot more complicated. I mean, there's so many unanswered questions. I mean, certainly there's a lot of un- unanswered questions for volcanic eruptions, but how would you compare these two efforts of monitoring volcanoes and seismic events and, and who's, or not to pit volcanologists against seismologists, but how, how <laughs> no, good is the effort? <laughs> I don't want to, I don't um, want any beef. <laughs> right. Well, I would honestly say, I think personally think like predicting earthquake gets a lot harder because we actually like for volcanoes, you have specific locations that you you know where the volcanoes are located, right? And you can put like very dense instrumentations around the volcano to track like any sort of deformations. And you can track like the, you know, any seismicity that occurred like within the region. And you can sort of use those as a pointer for, you know, how the migration of the uh, the magma. And so so I think if I understand, you know, volcanic eruption prediction correctly like you know there people nowadays have advanced um, techniques enough that they would be able to kind of predict you know at what day from now like you would be like you have to evacuate and all that but it's much harder for earthquakes because it's a much more abrupt process so we're talking about for an earthquake we're only talking about like a few seconds at most um, for from a majority of them and for magnitude larger than you know eight or nine we may be expecting like a minute of shaking but that's it right like so so comparing to the buildup of a volcanic eruption is a much shorter process so it's also much harder to pinpoint when exactly it's happening and also because there are again because like we're not able to image the crust very clearly so it's really hard to tell which fault is under like you know, it's critically stressed and which one is prone to the next earthquake. And it's really hard also to point out that a lot of map, a lot of faults are actually unmapped. So um, we actually don't know the existence of the fault until there is an earthquake occurring on it. So actually, like in the case of induced seismicity, what people, um, what scientists do is that most of the major earthquakes, they occurred on faults that are unmapped. And these days, we actually use the seismic catalog, like based on like where the earthquake occurs, we actually use the seismic catalog to build the map, the, the, the fault map in the particular region. So it's like the reverse of it. We actually like, you know, depend on what happened, we can actually found out what's in the subsurface. So I think with all those, because of all these kind of reasons, it's really much makes um, earthquake predictions a lot harder. So one of the uh, one of the things that a lot of the general public um, thinks about is with fracking is uh, contaminated water. So from from what I've from what I've read, like the main risk of water contamination is during the actual drilling procedure itself, not so much with the actual fracking of the rock below. But is it possible that? Well, I'll just say, what, what is your opinion on the on the potential for for these earthquakes to change the the dynamics of the hydrogeology and bring these 
um, chemicals up to the you know water table level? I don't think it actually like induced earthquake would actually impact that you know to a large extent because um, a lot of these induced earthquakes actually occurred at um, a little bit deeper than the wells themselves. So um, in cases, um, they most of them are actually occurring in the within the crystalline basement. Even though I think in Oklahoma, they also said that you know the um, tectonics allowed a lot of you know, pre-existing fractures do occur in the within the sedimentary formation. But still, most of the earthquakes, the induced earthquakes with, you know, um, considerable size, they are occurring in the, within the crystalline basement. So um, that's uh, like quite a bit deeper than like the groundwater table. So I don't think it would have like a direct impact on, you know, the likelihood of uh, water contamination. Um, another thing is, that the earthquakes usually, you know, the slip of these earthquakes is all is on the order of, you know, maybe a few meters at most. So it's not likely to, you know, shake up the entire region or or change deform the the region in a in a macroscopic scale um, so large that it could, you know, um, has an impact on water contamination. So I don't think there is a very direct, you know, link between the two. Well, I think this is a good place to uh, switch gears a little bit and move into some less hard-hitting questions. So I wanted to ask, if you weren't an earth scientist, who would you be? Actually, like what right now, I actually don't really know. Like as I, I haven't really thought about like a second career. But when I was a kid, um, before I know that, you know, I want to go into earth science, I've always wanted to be a canine officer. So I want to, um, be, yeah, I want to work with a police dog. And partly because where I grew up, I didn't really get a chance to keep any pets because Hong Kong, we are all living in very small apartments in condo buildings and there are strict rules that we're not allowed to keep any dogs. So, so you know, it's my childhood dreams to be able to have a pet. And so since that's not possible, it's always my dream to be a canine officer so that I can always work with a dog. You know? <laughs> But that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a dog or do you plan to get a dog? No, I don't have, I still don't have a dog. But I guess when, you know, now that I'm older, I feel like, okay, it's, you know, I, I wouldn't really enjoy, you know, having to walk it twice, you know, early in the morning and late at night. And so, you know, yeah, also because I'm living in Toronto now and the winter is brutal. So that's also another, adding to another factor why I don't feel like I want to keep a dog for now. I should I should introduce you to my dog. He's just a couch potato all day. Doesn't need much walks except a couple times a week, and and he's got a big winter coat. Maybe yeah. Okay, maybe I should reconsider then. And then my my closing question is: If you could solve one scientific mystery that interests you, whether it's in the earth sciences or 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 not, what mystery would that be? I think if I'm so I think I'm thinking about this like outside of earth sciences um, okay. and because uh, my husband is actually a social psychologist. So he always like tells me about, you know, interesting things in his field. And so one question that really interests me is like, why do people have consciousness as in like what makes us different from, you know, a regular object and, you know, what makes neuron does what it does. And so, yeah, so that would be that would be one scientific mystery. That I want to solve. This is emergent phenomena. Yeah. There's so many of them in nature and they're so mysterious. Yeah. Yes, yeah, especially because psychology, it's a it's a fairly new uh like scientific field. It's super interesting. Like yeah. earth science. Like I mean like plate tectonics, it's also Yeah, exactly. Uh Sophia, would you like to end our uh, episode with a quote? I'd love to, since I haven't in a while. So this one is from Dr. Marie Curie. And she said, nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. 
Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. Oh, great yeah. quote. Great quote. Very true. Yeah. And thank you so much for your insight today. We had a lot of fun talking to you and picking your brain a little bit. So thank you so much for, for coming yeah, on the show. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners as well. We hope to have you tune in next week again for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university.